There he goes. One of God's own prototypes. A high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live, and too rare to die. Welcome to episode 101 of the Digital Freemason Podcast for the week of February 2nd, 2009. I'm your host, Scott, and I'll be taking along on my excellent adventures to the world of short Masonic educational papers. As always, this and all other episodes are available at the website, www.thedigitalfreemason.com. I encourage you to swing by and check it out. So, while I'd hoped to have this episode out, you know what, I had it pretty much I can in time for the regular bi-weekly publication. It just, uh, things just got away on me, and uh, by the time I realized that things were not shaping up very well, we were well into uh, the third week, so I just thought I'd hold off and get things properly lined up and back on cycle. This week's episode comes from... A short talk bulletin of the Masonic Service Organization, and it's done by uh, Brother A.W. Wood, and talks about the relationship between lodges and the Grand Lodge. And this is actually ends up being a fairly timely piece as I was uh, at the annual elections for the Masters, Wardens, and Deacons Association of Alberta yesterday, and we got into a conversation as to what it is that is the responsibility of the lodge and what it is that is the responsibility of the Grand Lodge. And came under the came to the realization that the Grand Lodge is not so much the day-to-day operations and what can and cannot be done within a lodge, but is more an administrative body. And this was pointed out by one example where a Grand Master suggested, "Well, in lodge, that something should be done a particular way." And the Worshipful Master said, "I am master of this lodge, and uh, we will not do it that way. We will continue to do it the way that we are, have always done it, and wasn't." breaking any of the regulations or the constitution of the Grand Lodge, so there really was nothing that the Grand Master can do. And this is given as an example whenever the Grand Master does visit a lodge. It's not an official visit, but just a fraternal visit. So let's get going with Brother Wood's piece on lodges, the relationship between lodges and Grand Lodges. The first Grand Lodge was formed in London, shortly after the suppression of the Jacobite Rising in 1715. Now, Anderson's New Book of Constitutions of 1738 records that a few lodges at London, finding themselves neglected by Sir Christopher Wren, thought fit to cement together under the Grand Master at the Centre of Union and Harmony. They and some old brothers met at the said apple tree, and having put in the chair the oldest Master Mason, they constituted themselves as a Grand Lodge, and forthwith revived the quarterly communication of officers of the lodge, called the Grand Lodge, and, quote, resolved to hold an annual assembly and feast, and then caused to choose a Grand Master from among them, till they should have an honor of a noble brother at the head. The first meeting was held at the gruesome gridiron alehouse in June of 1717, and Anthony Sayer was elected and installed as the Grand Master, before the brethren had proceeded to dinner. The Grand Master commanded that the masters and wardens of the lodge meet the grand officers every quarter in communications. In fact, the grand lodge only met annually for feasts for several years. Nevertheless, each meeting was called a quarterly communication at whatever interval it met, and the grand lodge of England still remains a quarterly communication. The brethren who established the Grand Lodge claimed, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that Anderson reported that they claimed, to be reviving the Grand Lodge. In his somewhat imaginative history of the craft, Anderson mentions several assemblies of Masons. 
But there is no real evidence that they had ever before been such a thing as a Grand Lodge. Probably they had in their minds the annual gatherings of great London companies and wanted to establish something similar for themselves. These box societies, Masonic or otherwise, usually admitted new members with some form of ceremony and secret means of recognition. They met for social occasions and carried out at least some form of charitable work for their own members. Most of them, like the guilds before them, were purely local in character. Masons, from a very early time, had been accustomed to traveling in search of work, and to expect assistance from lodges wherever they found one. Do Dr. Ronard Plott of the National History of Stamfordshire wrote in 1686, mentions the peculiar customs of the Masons, the fact they had admission ceremonies and secret means of recognition, and the right to claim assistance from brethren uh, anywhere in the country. Whether the founding lodges revived or formed Grand Lodge, there can be no doubt that they did not intend to establish an authorization body that would undertake the government of the craft. Had such a thought occurred to them, most of them would almost certainly have voted against the proposal. However, the four founding lodges may have viewed the matter in its inevitable way as such a body existed that it should come to the regard as the head of the craft. At first, its jurisdiction was limited to the City of London and Westminster, a comparatively small area, but gradually it began to receive requests for recognition from further afield. Probably the first sign of this authority was in the formation of new lodges. So what is the purpose of the Grand Lodge today? First and foremost, it is an organization that can guarantee the regularity of the lodges under its control. Without the authority of the Grand Lodge, no mason traveling in another jurisdiction can hope to be received into the lodges in the course of his travels. A primary function is diplomatic recognition. The necessary consequence of this function is that Grand Lodge must ensure that all of its lodges are regularly formed and managed, and that they continue to adhere to the ancient landmarks. Few Grand Lodges have attempted to define these landmarks. Masons would probably differ in every list they might produce, but I doubt if many would have difficulty in recognizing things that would clearly transgress those landmarks. In case of doubt, Grand Lodge might decide whether a particular custom does or does not conform to landmarks, and by doing so it prevents any small group from taking over a lodge, and ensures that its lodges remain regular, and therefore acceptable to other Grand Lodges. Another major function is in organizing and managing the charitable side of the craft. Charity has been a feature of Freemasonry from the very beginning of its organized existence. What is now the Fund of Benevolence in England was started under the name of the General Charity in 1727, and by 1731 all lodges which had accepted the government of the new Grand Lodge were already paying into a central fund for the relief of poor Masons and their families. Masonic homes, scholarship funds, hospitals, drug and alcohol abuse programs, childhood illness clinics are all examples of charities handled by the Grand Lodge level through the Grand Lodge. In short, Grand Lodge administers the various charities which Masons subscribe to, which are not controlled by independent boards. Regular organized meetings of the Grand Lodge are a feature of Masonry under all jurisdictions and have been from the earliest times. Many Masons are critical of the annual communications as a waste of time and money. I believe that such meetings, not only for the transaction of Masonic business, but also for the exchange of views and for social purpose, are valuable and help strengthen the fraternal bond. The power to constitute new lodges belongs to the Grand Lodge, and this function of consecrating is vested with the Grand Master. 
Grand Lodge's legislative function is to pass laws for the good government of the craft, and it is in the executive capacity to administer them. It also has the power to determine, in its judicial capacity, disputes over Masonic matters, and to discipline members who transgress these rules. This is no different from the power of any other club or society. In carrying out these functions, Grand Lodge appoints executive boards, appoints and employs officers, maintains records, and of necessity levies fees for, for the pay of its work. In the interest of reasonable uniformity, it lays down rules as to regalia and ritual, the way in which lodges are governed, the term of the office of the master, and the records of the lodge that must be kept. All Grand Lodges have rules covering most of these points, some of these rules are matters of Masonic tradition. Some are inserted, for example, because they have provided a simple rule book for the guidance of secretaries and treasurers, most of whom are not professional record keepers. Now the original purpose of lodges of non-operative Masons were to offer support and encouragement in a time of difficulty, to provide a vehicle for charity and to dispense financial help where needed, to encourage good principles and to meet the need of all men in a congenial society. I don't think the purposes are any different today. There are many reasons why different men join or remain in Lodge, but I think there are several which all of us will recognize. For most of us, the ritual is a continual source of joy. It is generally good and sometimes superb prose, something that today we are starved for. The church sometimes no longer supplies it, radio sometimes, and television and modern literature almost never. Yet the appeal of good writing is revealed at any meeting in the breathless hush when one of the great charges is well delivered, or in the injunction to charity, or to the address of the master at installation. Where, today, does the average man receive any instruction in ethics and good conduct? For the church, if he attends, probably from the radio sometimes, but from TV and modern literature, with their emphasis on evil, degradation, lust, and violence, almost never. Contrary to what we are led to believe in the press, television, and literature, the majority of people prefer good to evil, seek to do what is the best that they can, and enjoy the beauty of the world, weep when they must, and laugh when they can. Yet virtue does not spring full, fully armed in this, from the soul of the man. It is learned, as the prophet tells us, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little, and in that way, Masonry leaves its imprint on the souls of the men who listen to and try to observe its precepts. Another need for most is the opportunity to do something for others. I believe that lodges should be putting more emphasis that, on what they can do as charitable work for, of the craft. We have not kept pace with the times, and much of the apathy that exists in lodges is quite simply because we have drifted and have not presented worthwhile challenges to the brethren. Like societies from which we sprang, we should be careful to offer comfort and support to our brethren and their families in time of trouble and affliction. This is not the duty of the almoner, in exoneration of the rest of us, but a duty imposed by the craft on all of its membership. Each of us should make sure that we are aware of the troubles of our fellows, and ever ready to pour the healing balm of consolation into the bosom of the afflicted, and to drop a tear of sympathy over the failings of a brother. At a different level, masonry is a means of self-improvement. Most of us are not orators, and all will remember the trepidation when we first raised our voices at instruction. To learn to speak so that we are heard, to think on our feet, and not be paralyzed by our nerves when we are called upon to say a few words, is surely a worthwhile use of our time. 
Finally, all men need a relaxation and social life. Why did masonry prosper in the 50s and 60s? Surely because men enjoyed their masonry and spoke enthusiastically about it so that others would want to join. Let us bring the fun back into Freemasonry. Let us enjoy the present time without looking over our shoulders at the vanished past or dreading a future which may never come. If we learn to make our gatherings pleasant and enjoyable social occasions, which we remember and talk about with pleasure, it is possible that the world will once more seek to join us because it is good and pleasant for brethren to dwell together in unity. So that's Brother Wood's piece on the relationship between lodges and Grand Lodge. And it, I always like to note that it is the responsibility of the lodge itself for the quality of its members and the number of its members. And that it's everyone looks to the Grand Lodge to have the silver bullet and to be able to do all those things that are needed to be done to keep the fraternity strong when that's not really their role. Their role is just to administrate and make sure that all the lodges within the jurisdiction are doing what it is that needs to be done in order to make sure that the Constitution and the bylaws are being adhered to. Everything other than that is just advisory or administrative. So the question I'll pose to you is, as a member of your lodge, what are you doing to make sure that your lodge and thus all of Freemasonry is staying strong? So until next time, I've been your host Scott and I've enjoyed our time together. And next time, hopefully it'll be in two weeks and not a four week or plus two week extravaganza. So be sure until next time to keep the shiny side up.